2: absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated wow did we just write an ad yes
3: Bombus.
4: big comfort for everyone go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for
5: 20% off your first purchase
2: an artistic masterpiece with a hidden past
5: he looked at him and said I did it
1: I painted it
2: an epic journey of brotherly love
1: Ordinary people would just hop onto a bus, drive a car, but Alvin was not an ordinary person.
0: And a radioactive discovery of untold riches. They were both shocked. It was about the best you could ask for. Inside
2: the walls of
0: great institutions lie extraordinary relics,
2: tales of intrigue and wonder, and secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Vinton, Iowa. Founded in 1849, this town is home to a world-renowned School for the Blind, which counts among its alumni, Mary Ingalls, the sister of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And celebrating over 160 years of this area's history is the Horridge House. Its collection includes beautifully restored items of 19th century life, including a cast iron stove, a pipe organ, and a model of the iconic Santa Maria. But one artifact has been left in the damaged state in which it was found. It's a small
4: piece of metal that fits in the palm of your hand. It includes some rust, some
2: burn marks. As board vice president, Phil Borleski knows, this singed relic was part of a fiery tale of deception that stunned the nation.
4: The artifact is a piece of evidence in one of the most famous murders in the
2: state of Iowa. To whom did this identification tag belong? And what role did it play in a bizarre and heated crime? February 3rd, 1897, Walford, Iowa. Evening has fallen on this sleepy hamlet of just 100 people. It was the kind
4: of community where everybody knew everyone else and probably everybody else's business.
2: Later that night, a disturbing event jolts citizens from their slumber. People woke to the sound of fire. Many rush to the blaze and watch in horror as the town's general store burns to the ground. The flame was filling the night sky. It was a matter of real shock that the building was burning down. The next morning, investigators sift through the smoldering ruins and encounter a chilling sight a charred set of human remains. They found
4: the corpse, ribcage and skull, lying in the ashes.
2: Authorities suspect the victim is the store's popular owner, 32-year-old Frank Novak. When a scorched piece of metal, the same artifact now on display at the Horage House, is pulled from the debris, the suspicion is confirmed.
4: It seemed to be the identification tag that Frank Novak always wore tacked to his suspenders.
2: They also discover a St. Joseph cord, a symbol of the Roman Catholic faith. Investigators assume that the fire was nothing more than a tragic accident. But soon, witnesses come forward claiming to have seen someone else in the store the night it burned down, a man named Ed Murray. Ed Murray was a
4: farmhand, and he had a reputation as being a hard drinking man. Several people said that they had seen both Murray and Novak together in the store about 11 o'clock.
2: But when police seek out Murray at his family home, even his father doesn't know where he is. His son hadn't returned home that night. And soon, there's a shocking twist that turns the case on its head. Ed Murray's sister tells investigators that the St. Joseph's cord discovered with the remains is strikingly familiar.
4: She said Murray always wore that cord as a devout Roman Catholic Christian as a sign of his chastity. Murray's sister was absolutely convinced that the body was that of her brother.
2: Stunned by this claim, investigators consider the similarities of the two men.
4: Both Novak and Murray were about the same age, and they were about the same build. Was it Novak? Was it Murray?
2: It was possible it could be either one. Soon, the investigation is handed over to the county attorney, M.J. Tobin. He was very
4: bright, very ambitious, and very persistent. Tobin
2: was eager to get to the bottom of the case. Tobin asks local professionals to examine the key forensic evidence, the victim's skull. One of
4: the physicians noticed that there was a fracture to the skull, probably caused by a blunt force blow. It was clear that foul play was probably involved.
2: But that's not all Tobin's inquiry turns up. A dental assistant, who'd recently attended to Novak, examines the skull and makes a declaration. The dental assistant was very clear that this was not Novak's jaw. For Tobin, the conclusion is clear.
4: They were unanimous in their opinion that the body found in the ruins was that of Ed
2: Murray. Now investigators begin to suspect that the store owner killed Murray and set the blaze to cover his tracks. Tobin is determined to bring him to justice. Tobin then
4: launched one of the biggest manhunts in Iowa history and put up a $200 reward for the return of Novak. Investigators track Novak to Omaha,
2: and then from there to the West Coast. And in July 1897, after more than five months on his trail, investigators receive a tip that he's hiding out in a small Alaskan town called Dawson City. One of the detectives
4: walked over to him and said, you're Frank Novak. The investigator
2: had his man. Novak is arrested and brought back to Iowa. And as Tobin puts together his case, he uncovers the sinister motive behind the murder. It turns out that Novak was a compulsive gambler who was horribly in debt. So to escape his financial burdens, he devised a wild scheme. Novak had taken out a total of about $27,000
4: in insurance policies against his life shortly before the
2: fire. He killed the similar-looking Murray in order to fake his own death in hopes that his family could collect the insurance. Novak is put on trial for murder and arson, and on November 23, 1897, he's found guilty and sentenced to 10 years in prison. And today, at Horridge House, Novak's identification tag serves as a lasting reminder of a case of switched identities and the incendiary crime that scorched a small town. In the 19th century, Springfield, Massachusetts, was a hotbed of innovation and home to the discovery of vulcanized rubber and the invention of basketball. So it's no surprise that here, visitors can discover a pioneering institution, the Damore Museum of Fine Arts. This stately building houses impressive works that span centuries, from neoclassical bronze sculptures to modern American art. And hanging among this collection is a painting with a singular style.
5: The piece looks very old. It's in a beautiful, dark wooden frame. It's a portrait of a gentleman that is very eloquently painted.
2: According to curator Julia Courtney, this canvas once concealed a stunning mystery.
5: No one knew where this masterpiece came from, except one man. And his secret shocked the world.
2: Who created this portrait? And how did he pull off one of Art's greatest deceptions? May 1945, Germany. It's the close of the Second World War, and Allied forces are on the hunt for Nazi officers. One of their highest profile captures is the founder of the Gestapo and the head of the German Air Force, Hermann Göring.
5: Hermann Göring was the second most powerful Nazi after Hitler.
2: While searching Göring's hideout, Soldiers make an amazing discovery.
5: When the Allied troops took down Goering, they found a huge treasure trove of artworks.
2: The Nazis are known art thieves, and Goering's collection contains pilfered works from some of history's most celebrated talents. But one piece stands out from the rest. A painting called Christ and the Adulteress, attributed to the 17th century Dutch master Johan Vermeer.
5: Johann Vermeer is considered to be one of the most important artists that ever lived. Many works by Vermeer were considered highly valuable.
2: Determined to uncover the masterwork's rightful owner, the Allies scanned through German records.
5: The Nazis kept really meticulous records about the artwork, where it came from and where it was stored.
2: It seems that Goering purchased the Vermeer from an Amsterdam art dealer named Han van Meegren. So, on May 29th, Dutch authorities pay him a visit.
5: He was an older gentleman, slight built, and he was very respectable looking.
2: Investigators demand to know how the Vermeer came into his possession. But Van Meegren refuses to answer any questions. Suspecting the dealer has something to hide, an officer accuses Van Meegren of selling a stolen Vermeer to Göring.
5: He was told at that point that selling a cultural treasure to the Nazis was uh, a treasonous act.
2: Under Dutch law, the punishment for such a crime is death. Then a rattled Van Meegren offers a baffling confession.
5: Van Meegren turned to the officer and said, I did it, I painted it. The officer wasn't sure whether to believe him or not.
2: Van Meegren insists that he mastered Vermeer's style and created six forged works including the Head of Christ, now on display at the Damore Museum of Fine Arts.
5: Van Meegeren had been selling them for a lot of money.
2: But authorities are not convinced he crafted this time-worn masterpiece. So they issue a challenge that they believe will settle the matter once and for all.
5: The idea was that if Van Meegeren could paint these and fool art experts, he should be able to paint a work in front of the officers.
2: So can Van Meegeren create a convincing forgery? Or will he be proven a traitor?
6: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.
2: It's 1945 in Amsterdam. A Dutch art dealer named Han van Meegeren is facing execution for selling a stolen Vermeer painting to the Nazis. But the art dealer has an extraordinary defense. He claims the artwork in question was a fake that he created. But to prove it, he'll have to paint another masterpiece. So can he do it? Van Meegren begins his demonstration under the eyes of skeptical authorities. But as his painting takes shape, they can't help but be impressed by his talent.
5: It became clearer and clearer that he actually had the technical skill to create a forgery.
2: But there is one glaring discrepancy between Van Meegren's creation and the one found in Goring's stash. The celebrated painting appears centuries old. And that's when Van Meegeren reveals the final step of his process. He puts his painting into an oven. When he removes it an hour later, the paint is yellowed and cracked.
5: Van Meegren had created in front of their eyes what looked like an old Vermeer painting.
2: The master mimic reveals that the secret lies in a simple material mixed into the paint.
5: Van Meegeren figured out that if he added a product called Bakelite, which was an early plastic, as a binder then the works could be heated and the paint would harden to look like it was very, very old.
2: Van Meegren's demonstration convinces Dutch authorities that he did not sell cultural treasures to the Nazis.
5: The government dropped the treason charges because they could see that he had successfully forged the Vermeers.
2: The artist is found guilty of a lesser charge, forgery for profit, and is sentenced to a year in prison. But instead of being remembered as a convicted criminal, the artist is celebrated for his craft and guile.
5: Van Meegren was hailed as a national hero by the Dutch for fooling Hermann Goering and making him pay such a large sum for a fake painting.
2: And here at the Damore Museum of Fine Arts in Springfield, this painting hangs as proof of one man's ingenious talents in the fine art of fakery. When architect Pierre L'Enfant designed the urban plan for Washington, D.C. in 1791, he chose a site known as Jenkins Hill as the home of the Capitol building. And just in the shadow of this imposing landmark lies a more modest structure from that bygone era, the Sewell-Belmont House and Museum. Built in 1800 as a private residence, it later served as the headquarters of the campaign to give women the right to vote. Today, this institution chronicles the struggle that was waged for suffrage. And one object in particular symbolizes the most perilous push in the quest for equality.
6: It is approximately one and a half by one inches square. It is made of metal. It has a small chain that stretches horizontally across the entire width and a small padlock.
2: According to executive director Paige Harrington, This small pin represents a courageous act that advanced democracy by leaps and bounds.
6: This pin symbolizes an incredible sacrifice.
2: What gripping act of heroism does this pin commemorate? 1917, Washington, D.C. 28-year-old Alice Paul is the founding leader of the National Women's Party, a political group arguing for women's equality. And the current focus of their campaign is an amendment to the Constitution of the United States.
6: Alice Paul was fighting for a federal amendment to support the women's right to vote.
2: First proposed in 1878, the 19th Amendment has met decades of public and political opposition. So Alice conjures up a daring strategy to drum up support from President Woodrow Wilson.
6: They did something that was quite outlandish and very scandalous and had never been done before. In early 1917, they began picketing the White House.
2: It's the first organized protest in front of the White House. But instead of uttering a word, the women let their banners do the talking.
6: They had slogans that read, "Uh, Mr. President, how long must women wait for suffrage? And working women want the vote. And we demand enfranchisement.
2: The dramatic attempt to raise awareness seems to be working.
6: To see a middle-class woman standing quietly in front of the gates of the White House, it was quite radical. The public and the press took notice. There was a lot of support for the women.
2: But in April 1917, the nation's attention shifts when America enters World War I.
6: Everyone, including the president, assumed that Alice and her suffragists would set down their banners and work toward the war effort. However, they did not.
2: The women remain by the White House gates. But in the midst of war, the public perceives their persistence as unpatriotic.
6: They were routinely yelled at. They were spit upon. The banners were ripped from their hands and thrown into the gutter.
2: Then the government decides it's had enough and police are sent to break up the protest.
6: In November of 1917, Alice was arrested herself, and she was thrown in jail.
2: Alice is charged with obstructing traffic and sentenced to seven months in jail. Over the following weeks, 96 more women are thrown behind bars.
6: They were completely cut off and restricted from anyone outside.
2: For weeks, Alice and her fellow Freedom Fighters anguish over how they can draw attention to their cause.
6: They needed to raise the stakes, and they devised the plan to go on a hunger strike.
2: The women refuse to eat, drawing the ire of prison officials. After 78 hours, the warden attempts to end the affair and orders the women to be force-fed.
6: Alice had to endure an incredibly brutal process. Tubes forced up her nose, down her throat. She was held down, literally tied down, while this was taking place. It was very brutal.
2: But Alice knows this can be used to her advantage. When nurses from the prison leak the story to the press, the public is horrified by the barbaric treatment these peaceful protesters are enduring.
6: President Wilson began receiving letters and telegrams and calls from people all across the country who were wondering and questioning why these women were being treated so brutally.
2: And as public pressure mounts, Wilson has no choice but to act.
6: It was only a matter of weeks before he did issue a pardon, and Alice and the rest of the women were let go.
2: Paul's desperate and courageous gambit pays off. Six weeks after the hunger strike the White House makes an historic announcement.
6: President Wilson did finally support the right to vote for women.
2: After their release in 1917, Paul has pins depicting the prison door, like this one on display at the Sewell Belmont House and Museum, distributed to the fearless women jailed during the protest.
6: For the duration of their lives, the women that were imprisoned wore their pin as a badge of honor.
2: Finally, in 1920, Congress ratifies the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States.
6: After 72 years, the initial crusade led by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, and then brought home by Alice Paul and her contemporaries, was finally signed to law.
2: Today, a century after the battle was fought, this pin, on display at the Sewell Belmont House and Museum, tells of the suffragists' willingness to risk their lives behind bars to advance American democracy. Moab, Utah. Surrounded by a stunning red rock landscape, this haven for outdoor enthusiasts attracts over 1.5 million tourists per year. But one institution here draws visitors out of the desert sun and into its quiet galleries. The Museum of Moab. On display are ceramic vessels from the Fremont Indian tribe, the massive backbone of a prehistoric sauropod, and a topographical relief carved from an ancient slab of balsa wood. But one pair of objects
0: in this museum boasts a much more recent lineage. They are 11 inches long, about 4 inches wide. They are originally almost all leather, and both are now partly bronze.
2: According to director John Foster, this weather-beaten footwear belonged to a man
0: who embarked on an explosive quest. These boots were a witness to an amazing discovery that really transformed a town here in eastern Utah. To whom did these boots belong, and how did his actions trigger an
2: earth-shattering bonanza? December 1949, Houston, Texas. Charlie Steen is down on his luck. A trained geologist, he's recently lost his job with a local oil company and is struggling
0: to provide for his young family. He was married. He was 28. He had three kids and a fourth on the way. One day, while flipping through a
2: mining industry magazine, something catches Steen's eye.
0: He read an article
2: titled, Can Uranium Pay? Historically, the government has purchased high-quality weapons-grade uranium, known as Pitch Blend, from sources in Canada and Africa. But recently, a lower grade of uranium, called Carnotite, or Yellow Cake, has been discovered on the Colorado Plateau. Now the government is willing to pay top dollar to harness this domestic resource. Desperate to get in on the windfall, the geologist decides to pull up stakes in Texas and head for the Rockies.
0: His mom mortgaged part of her house to loan him the money. With that, he bought a small drill rig that he drove up to Dove Creek, Colorado.
2: Steen studies the region's topography and identifies a location in eastern Utah that he believes may harbor reserves of carnitite
0: 200 feet below the surface. He ended up staking about 12 claims down there. A lot of people thought he was crazy because he was going in an area where people had previously looked on the surface and thought it was barren. They referred to it as Steen's folly. And sure enough, as soon as he gets to work, he hits a roadblock. His original drill rig simply didn't go deep enough, so he needed some other equipment. Convinced he's
2: on the right track, a cash-strapped Steen begs a local businessman to lend him a rundown drill assembly. In exchange for a 49% cut of anything Steen finds, the man agrees.
0: He hauled the borrowed drill rig in there and he started drilling. At a depth of 72 feet, he starts to bring up
2: core samples of a dark gray rock that looks nothing like the bright yellow carnotite
0: he is after. He tossed it aside with the other drill cores and kept going.
2: Then, as his drill reaches
0: 197 feet, disaster strikes. Here's a loud bang and then a really loud whirring noise, which was his drill basically spinning free. This was bad. Steen's borrowed drill bit has broken off deep underground. He didn't have the equipment to retrieve it. He didn't have the money to replace anything. There was nothing he could do. Filled with despair, Steen packs a few things and
2: heads into town, hoping to borrow equipment to retrieve the broken drill bit.
0: But first, he stops at a local gas station for fuel. The station owner was kind of a part-time prospector, and he had his Geiger counter with him, like he almost always did. And he was just checking some samples. The man's rock samples barely register on the meter. Charlie facetiously said, oh, I got better stuff than
2: that. Steen presents him with the seemingly worthless dark gray cores
0: he's unearthed. And in that moment, his life changes forever. The needle got pinned. It sounded like full static, like a rattlesnake there's right off the scale. And they were both shocked.
2: Steen realizes he's discovered something far better than low-grade carnotite a domestic weapons-grade uranium that can compete with the finest international imports.
0: It was the first pitch blend or pure uranium oxide found in that area. It was about the best you could ask for. When word spreads of Steen's incredible
2: find, investors rush to lend him money, and he soon establishes a full-scale mining operation. For Charlie Steen and his hard-luck family,
0: It's an overnight tale of rags to uranium riches. The Mine ended up producing something like $120 million worth of ore. Fortune seekers pour into the area, hoping to follow in Steen's
2: footsteps. And in a matter of months, the sleepy town of Moab is transformed into a full-scale boomtown.
0: There had been people in the area prospecting before, but now it went completely nuts. It transformed the whole region, really. To commemorate his achievement, Steen
2: bronzes the boots he was wearing on the fateful day of his discovery, which are now on display at the Museum of Moab. And today, these boots stand as a metallic monument to one man's good fortune, which put a desert town on the map. With a population of just over 1,200 people and dozens of industrial and farming companies, the community of Lawrence has earned the moniker the busiest little town in Iowa. And exploring its agricultural roots is the Pocahontas County Historical Society Museum. This quaint institution showcases local items of yesteryear, including an 1895 hand-carved rocking horse, a piece of the town's old water tower, and the coat of a pioneer preacher. But the most iconic item in the collection is distinguished by its more modern appearance.
1: This object is green. It has a yellow stripe on the side, and the four wheels are yellow.
2: But according to Lawrence Public Library Board President Patty Buffy, this John Deere riding mower was used for more than a trim of the lawn.
1: This is a story of heartbreak and endurance in the face of adversity.
2: How did this simple machine drive straight from the fields of Iowa into the national spotlight? July 1994, Lawrence, Iowa. Alvin Strait is a 73-year-old retiree known around town for his hard-headed nature.
1: Usually, it would be best to stay out of his way because the way for something to be done was his way. One day, Strait receives
2: troubling news. His estranged older brother, Henry, has suffered a life-threatening stroke. Due to a family feud, the men haven't spoken in 10 long years. But given his brother's condition, Strait feels the urgent need to reconcile.
1: He did not know how much time his brother Henry had. Alvin very much wanted to make amends and clear up any difficulties they had had.
2: Henry lives 240 miles away in Wisconsin, just a few hours by car.
1: Ordinary people would just hop onto a bus, drive a car, but Alvin was not an ordinary person.
2: But Strait's poor eyesight has kept him from obtaining a driver's license and the stubbornly independent man refuses to take public transportation.
1: This was something that Elvin wanted to do on his own.
2: Then he realizes there is one way he could travel on his own.
1: The solution that Elvin came up with was the lawnmower he had in his backyard.
2: The same 1966 John Deere cutter on display at the Pocahontas County Historical Society Museum with a top speed of five miles per hour, it will take Straight weeks to reach his destination. When people hear of his plan, they fear the old man's gone senile.
1: Riding a lawnmower 240 miles seems like a very crazy idea to most people.
2: And with very little in savings, Strait can't afford to pay for hotels along the way. So the headstrong Iowan comes up with a creative solution.
1: Elvin decided he would devise his own mobile motel and turned a 10-foot trailer into his living quarters for this trip.
2: On July 5th, Strait loads up his ride and heads out onto the Iowa Highway. For three days, Strait putters along for about six hours a day, camping by the side of the road each night. But on the morning of his fourth day, only 20 miles into his journey, there's a big problem.
1: Alvin tried to start his mower, and it wouldn't start. It went kaput.
2: It's a setback that troubles even the typically stoic Strait. A mechanic tells Strait it will cost $250 to fix his mower. And with no other options, the cash-strapped senior agrees. Thankfully, the mechanic is able to get it running again. Now, Strait fears that the delay has cost him valuable time so he extends his driving to 10 hours a day.
1: He felt driven to go as quickly as he could. And over the next few weeks,
2: Strait manages to cover over 210 miles. But then, just two miles from his brother's home, Strait's long journey has come to an abrupt
1: halt. The mower dies again. And this
2: time, the stubborn Iowan isn't above asking for help.
1: The local farmer helps Alvin with the mower by pushing him into Henry's home.
2: On August 15, 1994, six weeks after beginning his remarkable trip, Alvin Strait arrives at his brother's doorstep.
1: Alvin is not really sure what to expect.
2: But despite their decade-long feud, the tension between the two men melts in an instant.
1: After 10 years, the two brothers were very happy to see each other again.
2: Henry slowly recovers. And when the press catches wind of Alvin Strait's epic journey to reconciliation, he becomes an unwitting folk hero.
1: Alvin received requests to appear on TV shows, but he turned them all down.
2: Two years later, in November 1996, Alvin Strait passes away. But his memory lives on when Hollywood transforms his quirky saga into the 1999 film, The Straight Story. And today, the riding lawnmower Alvin Straight took on his epic journey sits on display at the Pocahontas County Historical Society as a reminder of one Iowan's indefatigable spirit. Los Angeles, California, is best known for the veritable constellation of movie stars that reside in its picturesque hills. But just south of downtown L.A. is a museum that showcases stargazing of a different sort, the California Science Center. Its extensive collection features satellites and pioneering spacecraft, including the space shuttle Endeavour, as well as a full-scale model of the first Mars lander. Yet among these impressive craft stands a module whose groundbreaking mission blazed uncharted trails both up in space and down on
3: Earth. It's curved on the bottom, weighs about 12,000 pounds, and has all manner of levers and gadgets and gears. As curator Kenneth
2: Phillip attests, this capsule held the fate of embittered international rivals. These two nations have been at each other's throats. In what historic mission did this capsule play a part? And how did it shift the balance of global power? May 1972, Moscow. President Richard Nixon concludes a landmark summit with America's once fiercest foe, the Soviet Union. The talks between these former rivals signal a thaw in Cold War relations and a shared commitment to find ways of working together.
3: This was the first opportunity for the United States and the former Soviet Union to collaborate officially as nations. The most
2: ambitious of these resolutions is an unprecedented joint mission between the two countries' vaunted space programs. The plan is for two spacecraft, the U.S. Apollo and the Soviet Soyuz, to dock together in orbit and then welcome their fellow crews aboard.
3: It became formally known as the Apollo-Soyuz test project.
2: Physically linking two megaton modules in the void of space is a bold endeavor that carries extraordinary risk.
3: It's a lot of mass and momentum there.
2: The slightest misalignment between the craft could result in a fatal collision.
3: If you break your spacecraft, if you punch a hole in it, you've got a big problem because all your air is going out and you die. I mean, there would be nothing to breathe.
2: The extreme dangers of the project provoked skepticism on the home fronts of both
3: nations. People were not all uniformly in agreement that it could work or that it should go forward. There was not very much trust on either side.
2: But with the fledgling detente hanging in the balance, both nations resolved to put their best foot forward. At NASA headquarters in Houston, administrators assembled their best and brightest engineers for the project. At the helm will be top flight director, Glenn Lunny. Lunny is a natural leader with a keen and technical mind. It was
3: in his hands that the top shots were called.
2: That July, he welcomes his Soviet counterparts to Houston, where the former space race adversaries must now work together to hash out the mission's mechanics.
3: It's Just like a million details had to be worked out.
2: The team works to set aside rivalry in the interest of the mission. But it's soon clear that transferring the crews between the Apollo and the Soyuz will test the limits
3: of their ability. These two spacecraft were very different, and that was a major hurdle that had to be overcome.
2: The interior atmospheres of Soyuz and the Apollo are wildly incompatible and incredibly fragile. In opening the hatch door to their counterparts, both crews risk compromising their own limited supply
3: of oxygen. You've got a a micro-environment that's keeping you alive, any kind of a major pressure change, that would be a disaster. For
2: months, the teams struggle to solve the problems in a way that doesn't place one crew in greater jeopardy than the other. Finally, they come up with an ingenious fix, an independent docking module that will connect the two craft without drastically altering the atmosphere in either one. When the module is complete, it undergoes a series of tests. The system seems to work on Earth, but in space, there's no room for error.
3: You can minimize the dangers by planning carefully, but you can't make them go to zero.
2: Houston, July 15, 1975. From his perch in mission control, Glenn Lunny watches the Apollo prepare for liftoff. Less than 10 minutes later, the crew is in orbit. Then, 41 hours into the mission, the astronauts spot the Soyuz, and the two craft begin a delicate approach. The Apollo crew knows that if the docking goes awry, it's likely neither they nor the Soviets will make it back to Earth. They
3: had to get it right the first time.
2: 138 miles above the Earth, the Apollo closes in on the Soviet Soyuz in preparation for docking, and its crew braces for impact. Amazingly, this maiden rendezvous goes off without a hitch. The U.S. crew soon prepares to open the
3: hatch and make history. The fact that two countries that had been formerly enemies were actually doing this at the first time was really an amazing thing. truly was historical. There's no question about that. The Americans invite
2: the cosmonauts aboard the Apollo Command Module, the very one on display at the California Science Center. During the two days the Apollo and Soyuz are linked. Their crews share meals and conduct experiments. The mission is an overwhelming success and strengthens the nation's once tenuous peace.
3: It was enormous that these two nations trusted each other and decided to do something so inspiring. It's a noble endeavor.
2: Yet nearly 40 years after the historic docking, the legacy of the Apollo-Soyuz test project still resonates. The mission set the precedent for ISS, the International Space Station orbiting Earth today, a collaboration among 15 different countries. And this Apollo command module at the California Science Center exemplifies the unlikely partnership that set the course for an unexpected extraterrestrial alliance. From a forged painting to a fiery crime, a radioactive discovery to an outer space race. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.